Okay, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today and uh, that you got your clocks right, you know, so you're all in sync. That's awesome that you're here. You know, last week began the series, and I can just tell by the responses to last week that this was going to be uh, really a kind of a mind-bending series uh, as we look at the words that Jesus Christ spoke from the cross. And last week, we talked about the word of forgiveness and uh, how forgiveness is something that we all need, is our greatest need, and you know, we can't really be forgiving people until we've been forgiven, and uh, talked about you know, how God gives us that strength, and this week we're going to talk about another word that Jesus spoke from the cross, and it's the word of assurance. Now, we're basing this series on these seven last sayings of Jesus Christ from the cross, and I just want to share this. This came in our, uh, uh, it was actually a voicemail. Uh, that someone left, uh, you know, just on our you know, main line, and uh, it was a result of the flyer that we, you know, sent out into the mail to people about the seven, you know, famous last words. And so uh, I just thought it was so moving, I wanted to read it to us, and also because it's significant about today's date. This person said, it's a male who left the message, by the way. I got your card in the mail, famous last words, beautiful card, well done. I just wanted to tell you some famous last words that I heard one year ago on the 9th of March when my wife died. Just before she died, she looked up and stared at the end of the bed and said, not to me, but I believe to the Lord Jesus. I have loved you all my life. Then she laid herself down in the bed again, and she died about two minutes later. So when I saw your card about famous last words, it really got to me, because I know the Lord was with her, that he was there. So sometimes, you know, the, the, the words that we speak, they have significance about the life that we've lived, and also the words that we speak can actually give hope to other people. But what I want to do today is I want to talk about some other last words that we might want to call deathbed confessions, okay? Deathbed confessions that, you know, that people have kept secrets for a long time, and then they come to a place uh, on their deathbed, and they reveal those secrets. I actually googled deathbed confessions this week, and I just want to read a couple to you. Now, these are actual deathbed confessions. The number one deathbed confession is raked by the website that I was on. Uh, It was made by Julian Altman. In 1985, he confessed to stealing a Stradivarius violin in 1936 during a performance at Carnegie Hall. So 1985, about 49 years. He went on to become a violinist in the Washington, D.C. Symphony, and he played that stolen violin before presidents, foreign dignitaries, politicians. And then at the end of his life, he you know, told his wife where the, the violin was actually hidden because he had hid it by then, and when she found it in the case were the news clippings of it actually when it had actually been stolen and he had played it all those years. In 2004, here's another one. In 2004, Geraldine Kelly confessed to murdering her husband in 1991. So 13 years later, she confessed. Basically, she shot him in the back of the head, stored his body in an old freezer, and even moved him from California to Massachusetts in that freezer. When they opened it up, it was a mummified body inside, okay? In 1934, a picture was offered to the Daily Mall newspaper of what became known as the Loch Ness Monster. The Loch Ness Monster. It's in 1934. In 1994, 
So 60 years later, Christian Sperling confessed to faking the famous Loch Ness monster photo. 1934, back before Photoshop, and you can still do that. Well, today what we want to do is I'm going to look today at what I think is an even more significant and meaningful and insightful deathbed confession that was recorded on the day that Jesus Christ hung and died from the cross. Now, you want to grab your message notes so you can follow along, and all the verses that we'll be using will be here today. There's some blanks you can fill in. Maybe you want to take some notes today. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 23. just want to encourage you that if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to have a Bible, our free gift to you. So when you leave today, on both ends of the fireplace, there are racks with these Bibles in them. You can take one today. This is our gift to you. Just love to see you have a Bible in your home. And if you have one with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 23. So we're looking at these last words spoken by Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, as he was going through his punishment and his crucifixion. So it's pretty safe to assume that since Jesus did everything on purpose, that even in his death, he spoke on purpose. Pretty safe to assume that. So when we consider his words, we can learn what was most important to him. He's revealing what God is doing for us through his death. Jesus is a great teacher, and even on the cross, he's teaching us. Many scholars have also looked at these seven phrases, and they said that in these seven phrases, we find that Jesus was speaking into and meeting the seven most common needs that people have. So let's just give a kind of a setting about what's going on. I talked about this in depth last week. I won't do that again this week. So what's happened is, is that in the last several hours before we're going to read today, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by his, one of his closest disciples. He was then abandoned by the rest of his disciples. So he went through rejection. He went through ridicule. He went through mocking. He went through fake trials. He went through a severe whipping. And we described that in pretty gory detail last week, that He would actually be whipped so much that his flesh would be torn off and his organs would be about to come out. He had a crown of thorns that was shoved onto his head so that the blood would just be going down his face and into uh, all over his clothing as well that he might have been wearing. So then, after this hours of torture and everything that he has gone through, he was forced to then go outside and carry his cross, the cross that he would be hung on, himself to the place where he would be crucified. And as we know, reading the gospel accounts, that he was so weak, <clears throat> excuse me, it's cold, it's just really bugging me. Uh, <clears throat> he was so weak from the beatings that he had gone through that as he was going there, he actually stumbled and then they got Simon of Cyrene from the side to carry his cross the rest of the way. Well, when they got to the place where he'd be crucified, the Roman soldiers who were experts at torture Uh, And they perfected, you know, it's been described as the most cruelest form of death. They took his, they nailed him, you know, his hands and his feet to this cross. And then they would lift him up and they would drop him or forcefully, you know, throw the cross down as hard as they could so that the impact of that hitting with his hands nailed and his feet nailed would literally pull his shoulders out of their sockets. And then as he's hanging there, the, the way that someone died from crucifixion was not from the pain and not from the nails, not from the beatings, but simply through suffocation. And so they wouldn't be able to pull themselves up to get breath. And so the, you know, the reason that they wanted the shoulders to have so much pain is because that's how you pull yourself up and that, that person would be in pain. So here's what happens. Jesus has been dropped 
And then Jesus is hanging there. And the first words out of his mouth we're going to read just now. Look what it says. It says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. And we're going to look at these two guys today. Jesus said then, at this moment that I've just described for you, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And last week we described this as the word of forgiveness. And we talked about it being, as I said, our greatest need and that we can be forgiven. And because we've been forgiven, we can, as difficult as this may seem, forgive others. When we've been set free through forgiveness, now we have the power to set other people free as well, which ultimately sets ourselves free when we set others free by forgiving them. So what I want to do now is I want to look at the word of assurance. Now I'll put a picture up here. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, an artist depiction of what's going on with the criminals on either side of Jesus and the mockers and the soldiers, every, all underneath, ridiculing Jesus at that moment. Now, we know very little about these two who were crucified with Jesus. Uh, there are some traditions that actually give the two names, but just know that we don't know that. That's just tradition. And, uh, but we, and so we don't really know too much about them, but we can learn something about them by the words used by those who did know about them in the day that they lived, the words used to describe them. The words are translated as criminal, revolutionary, thief, robber. In our day, we would say terrorist. We'd say they're terrorists. That's who they would be. Uh, And so Luke actually uses, in his translation, in his version, he uses a Greek word. And you know, guys, I don't usually do this Greek stuff, but this one has a lot of meaning, so I thought I would today. Kakorge is the word he uses to describe them. And the reason I want to use that is because kakorge comes from two Greek words. The first one is kaka, and that means bad stuff. Just, okay, you got that? Bad stuff. And organ means doing the works of. Doing the works of, doing the works of bad stuff, being bad, what he was talking about. So this is referring to people who did really bad things. This is, these are men who had led lives of violent crime. Uh, they were as hard as you could get. They were mean. They were belligerent, even in death. Some believe that these two may have actually been the associates, criminal associates of Barabbas. And remember, Barabbas was set free. Hours earlier, as the crowds cried out to Pilate, free Barabbas, free Barabbas, crucify, crucify Jesus, and Barabbas was set free. There's some who may even believe that the cross that Jesus hung on was the one who was in, that was intended for Barabbas himself, and we have two associates of this hardened criminal on either side of him. So I believe that the key to us to fully understand the words that Jesus spoke today is to realize right up front, I want to say this so that we can grasp it and we can chew on it as we go today, is to realize up front that you and I are like the two thieves. Every one of us in this room is like one of the two thieves that we're going to look at today. Now, their crimes were very horrendous. And I would say that their crimes are way worse than probably many of those in this room. Some of you, your crimes are kind of top-door crimes. They're not quite as bad, you know. But these guys are the worst of the worst. 
But the Bible is so clear that it's not the amount of sin that you've done that makes you a sinner, right? It's not the amount. I have a chain. And if I want to break that chain, I simply have to take out one link and it separates the chain. That's all it takes to be called a sinner is one sin. I think we all qualify, right? Okay, we just agree. We all qualify for that. We're all in that boat. So as I read this story, let's just remember that we're reading about men who are just like us. So as I read it, I'm going to read it in just a moment. Just remember this as we go that both criminals are guilty. Both criminals are going to die. Both criminals want to be saved. Just remember that. Okay, now let's read this. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. So what's happening is, is this first criminal, is he's using his last moments, his last moments to mock Jesus Christ. He's using his last moments to ridicule Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's more than likely, you got to know, these guys came from the wrong side of the tracks, right? So they more than likely, even though we know that Jesus lived a lot of his life on the wrong side of the tracks, caring for those who were uh, rejected and separated from society because of what they'd done, Jesus loved on them. But more than likely, Jesus had never met either one of these uh, criminals, or they had met Jesus either. So this guy at this moment, he's only probably echoing what he's heard from the hecklers below. We, we recorded in Luke, they recorded that they heckled him in this way. So they're basically below saying, Jesus, we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you were the anointed one, oh Jesus, oh great one. But look at you, you're dying. If you're so strong, if you're the Messiah, just get yourself off the cross. That's what was going on below him. And so he started ridiculing Jesus in the same way. But then what if he thought, what if he thought, wow, what if Jesus really is who he says he is? And what if he does have power? Then maybe his question to Jesus, save us and save, save yourself and save us, really save me is what he was asking for that moment. Maybe it makes a little bit of sense. Maybe he's saying, if you really are the Messiah, I don't think so, but gosh, you might be. If you really are, I just want to cover all my bets right now. You're really the Savior. Get me off this cross. So what he's doing here, what I want to draw our attention to that we can understand today, he's demanding that Jesus Christ prove his claims. He's demanding that. He's goading Jesus to show that he's the Messiah by saving himself and all of them. He's demanding that Jesus save his life his way. Save his life his way. Now, we think about that. We probably know people like that, right? Some of us, this is where we are right now. We've heard about the claims of Jesus Christ. But it just sounds so... You really believe that this book? You really believe what it says about Jesus? And we sit there and we're ridiculing the Bible, and we ridicule people of faith. We ridicule the fact that we would be that bad that someone had to die for us because none of us think we're that bad that we would have to, ha to be in that place. And so it's similar. We demand that Jesus set us free our way. And what the criminal doesn't realize at that moment is that God has a plan, and it centers on grace and mercy, not on demands. 
on grace and mercy. Ken Geyer writes about that. He says this, if only Jesus would save himself, but he doesn't. Jesus knows he can choose one or the other. He could save himself or save us, but he can't do both. So the first person is just demanding that Jesus make his life better. You know, I want all of Jesus, except the part about submitting to him. I want him to make my life better, to take away my pain, to set me free from this. But the second criminal, he's in the same place, the same hard heart. He has a different response over time. He has a change of heart. He goes from ridiculing and mocking and demanding that Jesus do something to an entirely different attitude. Let's read what happens to him. The other criminal, looking at the first one, protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die. You might underline that. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, looking at Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And that's what Jesus said to him. So folks, I, I believe that what's happened here is we have divine revelation happening here. That I believe that we have this hardened criminal and I'm not sure if he's ever had any God teaching. I'm not sure if the Old Testament has ever been taught to him. Maybe it was when he was young, but he's been so far away that he would have forgotten much of that. And I believe that the second criminal through, I would call it divine revelation. And by the way, God works that way. Many of us came to Christ and and we came to, to know God as he revealed himself through others or through a circumstance or through the Bible. The second criminal, I believe, looks at Jesus and God is potentially revealing to him who Jesus is. And he sees the sign that has been placed above Jesus that says, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king. And he's thinking king means Messiah. And he's just realized as he's watched Jesus, who's been through the same treatment, only worse, because more than likely these uh, criminals were not whipped, scourged as Jesus was. You didn't scourge people before you took them to hang so they would die in pain. So Jesus had been scourged and beaten. Maybe they hadn't been. And he sees Jesus at that moment offer forgiveness to everyone who's hurting him. Remember we talked about this last week. What would be a typical response at this point? When you're hanging there and you've been abused and you've been hurt, well, the typical response would be to pray to God to release me, to remove me from this, or zap him, you know, that kind of response. But, and that's probably what the soldier would have prayed at that point. But he didn't see Jesus pray that. He saw Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. And so what happens is his view is changing from what he had seen of Jesus, to what the hecklers were saying about Jesus, and he sees him now as the chosen one, and he responds accordingly, and that's what I want us to focus on today. I want us to focus on the response of the second criminal. And what I believe we can learn today is I can believe we can learn from him the heart and the attitude that God expects from every one of us. So I'm going to give you three things that we can expect from this criminal. At the cross, first, I clearly see my sentence. As we look at him, He was sentenced to die, and we can see our sentence in this as well. Sentence means punishment. So what happens is, is at the cross, this criminal realized that he's about to die. You know, he's about to go beyond where any place he'd been before into the great unknown. And all of a sudden, he becomes afraid of meeting God. 
He's afraid of meeting God. He's afraid. He's scared at that moment of a holy God. At the cross, what we see is that God is a holy God, and God has holy standards. And God also dishes out holy judgment and holy punishment. So in other words, the criminal sees himself at an entirely new level. He's about to die. He's going to walk into this unknown, and he's not ready. He realizes he's not ready for what is about to come, and his heart is moved. He deserves to die as a criminal. He deserves to be, deserves to be punished for all he's done wrong. But he, and he realizes that sentence is his sentence. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for all, it says, for the wages of sin is death, punishment, separation from God. Second thing, at the cross, I see my sinfulness. As he saw his sinfulness, I see my sinfulness. See, Jesus didn't die for his sins. As we know, Jesus was sinless. And even the criminal looked at Jesus and said he hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus died for the sins of the many. He decided for the sins of all. Jesus was innocent, but the man realized he was guilty. And when we look at the cross, what we see is that Jesus is innocent and that we are guilty. In that instant, when that criminal saw his sinfulness, he represented every one of us. We are all sinners. The Bible says that for all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glorious ideal. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we have turned to our own way. And what it's saying, none of us is good. None of us. None of us, no matter how good we've been, no matter what good we've done, is good because of the good we've done, okay? It's just not going to happen. We're guilty, according to God, and we deserve death, and we deserve eternal separation from Him. And until we admit that, we can't receive what Jesus is doing for us on the cross. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, as long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. As long as we think we're not that bad, you know, there are a lot of people worse than me. Like I said, some of us, we think we're kind of top drawer people as it is. And God should just want us because of the way we are. But this guy realized he was not even in the bureau. He's underneath And he realizes he needs God. And God's here for all of us. Third thing is this. At the cross, I see my salvation. At the cross, I see the one in whom there is salvation. Just as the criminal saw his salvation, I see mine as well. So he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what a a transformation. He's gone from hardened criminal uh, to pleading sinner in just a few moments. Hardened criminal to pleading sinner. And all he had to do was humbly fling himself on the mercy of God and say, please. Say, please. See, folks, you look at this. Both men are desperate. Both of these criminals are desperate. One ridicules and mocks the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. One demands that Jesus change his circumstances and situation. And the other one responded with faith in the fact that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but he was also the Savior. And in these two criminals, we have the response, I believe, of the way people have responded to Jesus ever since the cross. Demanding that Jesus do something to show me he's God. Demanding in some way that there's proof or evidence that I just can't get beyond if I don't have. 
demanding from Jesus, and then the other one is accepting from Jesus what he did on the cross. And, and I believe that we have people in both camps today, here. You're, you've been stuck, been demanding in some way, and you're coming, you're seeking, but yet when it comes to actually saying yes to Jesus, you're stuck in the demands of how you think that it should feel or how it should work or the information that you need or the miracle that you would see or the experience that you would know or the relief that you would be able to have. And you're stuck because you've not been willing like the second criminal to say, please, please remember me. Okay, so turn your notes over on the back side. And let's look at what happens. Let's look at the words that Jesus finally speaks to this criminal. Now, I, just, I, I thought this was a, worth mentioning today as an observation, is that as both criminals spoke to Jesus, Jesus only responded to one. Right? Jesus didn't respond to the one who was criticizing and ridiculing. I just thought this might be something for us to hear today is that when you're around people that maybe want to ridicule Jesus, ridicule you, ridicule your faith, instead of debating them, instead of getting angry or defensive, maybe your best approach is to absorb what they're saying, to show the love of Christ, to show how he's changed you. Maybe that's part of what it would be. What I want to do is I want to share uh, the words that Jesus spoke. Uh, and the, I, these words just blew my mind, okay, when you really get into these. And uh, the first one is the title of the message. He spoke a word of assurance. He spoke a word of assurance. He said, I assure you today you will. Now, folks, when you read this, this answers the question about what happens to us after we die. So Jesus is saying, I assure you today you will be somewhere. I assure you, I'm giving you my word on this, that today you have my promise. You can take it to the bank. You can count on it. I assure you today, at the moment you take your last breath, this is what is going to happen. And we can have that same assurance, folks. And so this is why it's so important for us to come to Christ early in our lives, in our experience, so that we get to, secondly, we get to be in relationship. So he speaks the word of relationship. I mean, as awesome as I think it'll be beyond my, I can't even beyond my you know, ability to even imagine what it'll be like to walk with Jesus in heaven. I can't imagine not being able to walk with Jesus while I'm here. And how he transforms my everyday situation and circumstances I walk with him. He says, you will be with me. You will be in relationship with me. I, you know, I think one of the most excruciating circumstances that we could go through in life is to be excluded, right? Is to have those who we thought liked us reject us. To have our family say that we don't matter or we don't fit in or they don't want us in some way. And, and I, I think that's what this criminal would have been like, honestly. Uh, I, I don't think on this day that he was dying that there was anyone there mourning him. I don't think that anyone came because they were sad that this criminal was actually going to die on this day. Imagine the shock when this guy's thinking, there's nobody for me, when Jesus turns to him and says, I want you. He will be with me. Some of you just need to hear that today. He wants you. 
He wants you to be in relationship with him. Nobody else may. You may feel you're all alone. You may feel that what you've done is so bad that no one would ever want to be in relationship with you. And I just need you to know, Jesus says, you will know me. You will be with me. See, Jesus loved the criminal on the cross and wanted him to, uh, wanted to be with him just as much as he wants to be with us. Okay, third word, Jesus speaks. He speaks the word of hope. Word of hope. He says, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Now, it's interesting that Jesus chose this word to describe the next existence that this criminal would go to with him. Why is it so interesting? Well, he didn't have to choose this word. It's used a couple of more times in the New Testament. You can read those, look it up on you know, Bible Gateway or Version or something on your phone and look it up sometime. But he chose this word, and I believe he chose this word specifically at this moment. The word paradise comes from a Greek word, I mean, a Persian word. And the Persian word is something like paradisi, and then it came, comes into Greek, it's paradisio, and then it comes into English, paradise. So it's just transliterated all the way through. And the ideal is this. The idea is this. Paradise, paradise in the Persian world represented a garden. And the ideal paradise, or the ideal garden was the king's garden, the king's garden. So you just got to know these, you know, Persian kings, they had uh, elaborate estates, and on these elaborate estates, they made sure that they built these uh, elaborate, succulent gardens. And they were full of as many exotic animals as they could get, exotic plant life, flowing water, Uh, waterfalls that they would create inside these gardens that people could come to. It was a place of amazing beauty and amazing peace. And when the king wanted to show someone favor, what he would do is he would invite them to his garden. He would invite them into his garden. And here we have Jesus inviting this criminal (laughs) into paradise with him into his garden of peace that he was creating. He was breaking, if you know your Bible, he was breaking the curse that had been put on the Garden of Eden as recorded in Genesis. Breaking that curse, and he's inviting this prisoner to be with him in heaven. And that's what he's offering to the criminal. I can't wait till Easter. We get to Easter. You remember Mary Magdalene, when she sees Jesus, who does she think Jesus is? You know your Bible. The gardener, right? The gardener. She sees Jesus as the one tending for paradise. That's just a cool thought. Don't have anything to do with today, but there we go. That's what Jesus offered this criminal. And that's what Jesus offers to every one of us. And I just think it's so cool that in the Bible, the first person that we see Jesus inviting into heaven is a criminal and a thief. Jesus hung with sinners, right? That was what he was known for. That's what he was ridiculed for. That's what he was killed for, ultimately, as he hung for sinners and claimed with sinners and claimed to be the Messiah. Just see how open Jesus is that all of us would get to go to heaven no matter what we've done or where we've been. And I just love how the Bible continues to show us that God's kingdom is available to everyone and anyone who will turn toward him. And it's just incredible when you think about it. The criminal is guaranteed the same assurance as the greatest saint you can think of. The greatest, the same thing, the same relationship and the same hope 
that you can have. This guy's lived a life of depravity and sin his entire life. Moments before he's going to die, he makes a deathbed confession and says, please, to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't recommend that you wait until the deathbed to do this. You have no guarantees you're going to make it to your deathbed, right? The greatest reason I don't think you want to wait, folks, is some of you are going, well, I'll just take the odds here. And just, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll make sure to say the right thing and I'll go to paradise. Here's why. is because, yes, according to the Bible, you'll go to paradise. And you will spend your life in misery from this day forward until death. The greatest life is when you walk with God. Will you walk with Jesus in relationship? Each one of us, we can say yes to him. Now, the way we do that, look at what Romans says. What Paul writes about how we accept and receive forgiveness. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just know this. Know this. From this story, we can extrapolate that in order for me to have my hope secured... My sins forgiven. It's not the prayer I pray. Some of you are going, ah, oh, Ron, you know, when I was a kid, I prayed a prayer. I don't remember what I prayed, so it must not have made any difference. Or you know what, Ron? When I was older, I was 25, 26, I prayed a prayer, and you know, I really didn't understand what I was praying, so it must not have made any difference. Some of you say, you know what, Ron? When I started going to church and I started learning all kinds of theology and doctrine that is in the New Testament about what actually happens through salvation and then how I should live after I come to know Jesus Christ, uh, they tell me that there's all kinds of things I have to pray in order to be saved. Not if you look at this story. It's as simple as, please. It's as simple as remember me. Because the Bible says there's nothing we can do to receive grace. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Okay, so I want to wrap up now, and I want to ask you this question. Which thief are you? Which thief are you? We're all thieves, right? Which thief are you? See, it's not a question of whether we are a thief or not. We've all sinned. We've all hurt others, but which thief are you? Are you the one that's demanding that Jesus do something besides die on the cross before you believe in him? Are you the thief that says, please? So let me give you your bottom line. Okay, you want to write this down. Simple faith leads to saving grace. Simple faith leads to saving grace. The first criminal saying, Jesus, do something miraculous, save me from death. The second criminal saying, Jesus, do something miraculous, save me from my sin. That's the difference. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads now and let's pray together. And as you think about which, which criminal are you, that will determine your prayer at this moment. And I'm just asking for those of you who've never said yes to Jesus Christ, that this has been so clear today. And I just, I've been praying all week long that when we come to this moment, 
that you would have the humility and the courage to say to Jesus right now, please remember me. In that, you're saying you're a sinner. In that, you realize that you're destined for eternal damnation and separation from him. In that, you realize that only Jesus can save you. In that one simple phrase, please remember me. We just read, all who call upon his name will be saved. And now you would want to say, Jesus, I want to live with you. I want to live with you beside me. I want to live with you inside me. I want to live every moment with the Jesus who saved me by dying on the cross. And I think that's the prayer for everyone else. They would say, Jesus, help me to live with the security of knowing where I'm going, knowing your love. Jesus, help me to live in relationship with you and help me to live with hope, the hope of paradise. Because it'll change the way I live when I live that way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.